Section 1 of Chapter 23 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 23, Section 1. Preface to the Fifth Volume. I have thought it right to publish that portion of the continuation of the history of England which was fairly transcribed and revised by Lord Macaulay. It is given to the world precisely as it was left. No connecting link has been added, no reference verified, no authority sought for or examined. It would indeed have been possible, with the help I might have obtained from his friends, to have supplied much that is wanting, but I preferred, and I believe the public will prefer, that the last thoughts of the great mind passed away from among us should be preserved sacred from any touch but his own. Besides the revised manuscript, a few pages containing the first rough sketch of the last two months of William's reign are all that is left. From this I have with some difficulty deciphered the account of the death of William. No attempt has been made to join it on to the preceding part, or to supply the corrections which would have been given by the improving hand of the author. But, imperfect as it may be, I believe it will be received with pleasure and interest as a fit conclusion to the life of his great hero. I will only add my grateful thanks for the kind advice and assistance given me by his most dear and valued friends, Dean Milman and Mr. Ellis. Chapter 23 the rejoicings by which London, on the 2nd of December, 1697, celebrated the return of peace and prosperity, continued till long after midnight. On the following morning the Parliament met, and one of the most laborious sessions of that age commenced. Among the questions which it was necessary that the Houses should speedily decide, one stood forth preeminent in interest and importance. Even in the first transports of joy with which the bearer of the Treaty of Ryswick had been welcomed to England, men had eagerly and anxiously asked one another what was to be done with that army which had been formed in Ireland and Belgium, which had learned in many hard campaigns to obey and to conquer, and which now consisted of 87,000 excellent soldiers. Was any part of this great force to be retained in the service of the state? And, if any part, what part? The last two kings had, without the consent of the legislature, maintained military establishments in time of peace. But that they had done this in violation of the fundamental laws of England was acknowledged by all jurists, and had been expressly affirmed in the Bill of Rights. It was therefore impossible for William, now that the country was threatened by no foreign and no domestic enemy, to keep up even a single battalion without the sanction of the estates of the realm, and it might be doubted whether such a sanction would be given. It is not easy for us to see this question in the light in which it appeared to our ancestors. No man of sense has, in our days, or in the days of our fathers, seriously maintained that our island could be safe without an army. And, even if our island were perfectly secure from attack, an army would still be indispensably necessary to us. The growth of the empire has left us no choice. The regions which we have colonized or conquered since the accession of the House of Hanover contain a population exceeding twentyfold that which the House of Stuart governed. 
there are now more English soldiers on the other side of the Tropic of Cancer in time of peace than Cromwell had under his command in time of war. All the troops of Charles II would not have been sufficient to garrison the posts which we now occupy in the Mediterranean Sea alone. The regiments which defend the remote dependencies of the crown cannot be duly recruited and relieved unless a force far larger than that which James collected in the camp at Hounslow for the purpose of overawing his capital be constantly kept up within the kingdom. The old national antipathy to permanent military establishments, an antipathy which was once reasonable and salutary, but which lasted some time after it had become unreasonable and noxious, has gradually yielded to the irresistible force of circumstances. We have made the discovery that an army may be so constituted as to be in the highest degree efficient against an enemy, and yet obsequious to the civil magistrate. We have long ceased to apprehend danger to law and to freedom from the license of troops and from the ambition of victorious generals. An alarmist who should now talk such language, as was common five generations ago, who should call for the entire disbanding of the land force, of the realm, and who should gravely predict that the warriors of Inkerman and Delhi would depose the queen, dissolve the parliament, and plunder the bank, would be regarded as fit only for a cell in St. Luke's. But before the revolution our ancestors had known a standing army only as an instrument of lawless power. Judging by their own experience, they thought it impossible that such an army should exist without danger to the rights both of the crown and of the people. One class of politicians was never weary of repeating that an apostolic church, a loyal gentry, an ancient nobility, a sainted king, had been foully outraged by the Joyces and the Prides. Another class recounted the atrocities committed by the Lambs of Kirk and by the Beelzebubs and Lucifers of Dundee and both classes, agreeing in scarcely anything else, were disposed to agree in aversion to the redcoats. While such was the feeling of the nation, the king was, both as a statesman and as a general, most unwilling to see that superb body of troops, which he had formed with infinite difficulty, broken up and dispersed. But as to this matter, he could not absolutely rely on the support of his ministers, nor could his ministers absolutely rely on the support of the parliamentary majority, whose attachment had enabled them to confront enemies abroad and to crush traitors at home, to restore a debased currency, and to fix public credit on deep and solid foundations. The difficulties of the king's situation are to be, in part at least, attributed to an error which he had committed in the preceding spring. The Gazette, which announced that Sunderland had been appointed Chamberlain of the Royal Household, sworn of the Privy Council, and named one of the Lord Justices who were to administer the government during the summer, had caused great uneasiness among plain men who remembered all the windings and doublings of his long career. In truth, his countrymen were unjust to him, for they thought him not only an unprincipled and faithless politician, which he was, but a deadly enemy of the liberties of the nation which he was not. What he wanted was simply to be safe, rich, and great. To these objects he had been constant through all the vicissitudes of his life. For these objects he had passed from church to church, from faction to faction, had joined the most turbulent of oppositions without any zeal for freedom, had served the most arbitrary of monarchs without any zeal for monarchy, 
had voted for the exclusion bill without being a protestant had adored the host without being a papist had sold his country at once to both the great parties which divided the continent had taken money from france and had sent intelligence to holland as far however as he could be said to have any opinions his opinions were whiggish since his return from exile his influence had been generally exerted in favour of the whig party it was by his counsel that the great seal had been entrusted to summers that nottingham had been sacrificed to russell and that montague had been preferred to fox it was by his dexterous management that the princess anne had been detached from the opposition and that godolphin had been removed from the head of the board of treasury the party which sunderland had done so much to serve now held a new pledge for his fidelity his only son charles lord spencer was just entering public life the precocious maturity of the young man's intellectual and moral character had excited hopes which were not destined to be realized his knowledge of ancient literature and his skill in imitating the styles of the masters of roman eloquence were applauded by veteran scholars the sedateness of his deportment and the apparent regularity of his life delighted austere moralists he was known indeed to have one expensive taste but it was a taste of the most respectable kind he loved books and was bent on forming the most magnificent private library in england while other heirs of noble houses were inspecting patterns of steinkirks and sword knots dangling after actresses or betting on fighting cocks he was in pursuit of the men's editions of tully's offices of the parmesan statius and of the inestimable virgin of zaratus it was natural that high expectations should be formed of the virtue and wisdom of a youth whose very luxury and prodigality had a grave and erudite air and that even discerning men should be unable to detect the vices which were hidden under that show of premature sobriety spencer was a whig unhappily for the whig party which before the honoured and unlamented close of his life was more than once brought to the verge of ruin by his violent temper and his crooked politics his whiggism differed widely from that of his father it was not a languid speculative preference of one theory of government to another but a fierce and dominant passion unfortunately though an ardent it was at the same time a corrupt and degenerative whiggism a whiggism so narrow and oligarchical as to be little if at all preferable to the worst forms of toryism the young lord's imagination had been fascinated by those swelling sentiments of liberty which abound in the latin poets and orators and he like those poets and orators meant by liberty something very different from the only liberty which is of importance to the happiness of mankind like them he could see no danger to liberty except from kings a commonwealth oppressed and pillaged by such men as opimius and Verres, was free because it had no king a member of the grand council of venice who passed his whole life under tutelage and in fear who could not travel where he chose or visit whom he chose or invest his property as he chose whose path was beset by spies who saw at the corners of the streets the mouth of bronze gaping for anonymous accusations against him and whom the inquisitors of the state could at any moment and for any reason arrest torture fling into the grand canal was free because he had no king to curtail for the benefit of a small privileged class 
prerogatives which the sovereign possesses and ought to possess for the benefits of the whole nation was the object on which spencer's heart was set during many years he was restrained by older and wiser men and it was not till those whom he had early been accustomed to respect had passed away until he was himself at the head of affairs that he openly attempted to obtain for the hereditary nobility a precarious and invidious ascendancy in the state at the expense of both the commons and of the throne in sixteen ninety five spencer had taken his seat in the house of commons as a member for tiverton and had during the two sessions conducted himself as a steady and zealous whig the party to which he had attached himself might perhaps have reasonably considered him as a hostage sufficient to ensure the good faith of his father for the earl was approaching that time in life at which even the most ambitious and rapacious men generally toil rather for their children than for themselves but the distrust which sunderland inspired was such as no guarantee could quiet many fancied that he was with what object they never took the trouble to inquire employing the same arts which had ruined james for the purpose of ruining william each prince had had his weak side one was too much a papist and the other was too much a soldier for a nation such as this the same intriguing sycophant who had encouraged the papist in one fatal error was now encouraging the soldier in another it might well be apprehended that under the influence of this evil counsellor the nephew might alienate as many hearts by trying to make england a military country as the uncle had alienated by trying to make her a roman catholic country the parliamentary conflict on the great question of a standing army was preceded by a literary conflict in the autumn of sixteen ninety seven began a controversy of no common interest and importance the press was now free an exciting and momentous political question could be fairly discussed those who held uncourtly opinions could express those opinions without resorting to illegal expedients and employing the agency of desperate men the consequence was that the dispute was carried on though with sufficient keenness yet on the whole with a decency which would have been thought extraordinary in the days of censorship on this occasion the tories though they felt strongly wrote but little the paper war was almost entirely carried on between two sections of the whig party the combatants on both sides were generally anonymous but it was well known that one of the foremost champions of the malcontent whigs was john trenchard son of the late secretary of state preeminent among the ministerial whigs was one in whom admirable vigour and quickness of intellect were united to a not less admirable moderation and urbanity one who looked on the history of past ages with the eye of a practical statesman and on the events which were passing before him with the eye of a philosophical historian it was not necessary for him to name himself he could be none but summers the pamphleteers who recommended the immediate and entire disbanding of the army had an easy task if they were embarrassed it was only by the abundance of the matter from which they had to make their selection on their side were claptraps and historical commonplaces without number the authority of a crowd of illustrious names all the prejudices all the traditions of both parties in the state these risers laid it down as a fundamental principle of political science that a standing army and a free constitution could not exist together what they asked had destroyed the noble commonwealths of greece what had enslaved the mighty roman people what had turned the italian republics of the middle ages into lordships and duchies 
how was it that so many of the kingdoms of modern europe had been transformed from limited into absolute monarchies the states-general of france the cortes of castile the grand justiciary of aragon what had been fatal to them all history was ransacked for instances of adventurers who by the help of mercenary troops had subjugated free nations or deposed legitimate princes and such instances were easily found much was said about pisistratus timophanes dionysus agathocles marius and Scylla, julius caesar and augustus caesar carthage besieged by her own mercenaries rome put up to auction by her own praetorian cohorts sultan osman butchered by his own janissaries louis sforza sold into captivity by his own switzers but the favorite instance was taken from the recent history of our own land thousands still living had seen the great usurper who strong in the power of the sword had triumphed over both royalty and freedom the tories were reminded that his soldiers had guarded the scaffold before the banqueting-house the whigs were reminded that those same soldiers had taken the mace from the table of the house of commons from such evils it was said no country could be secure which was cursed with a standing army and what were the advantages which could be set off against such evils invasion was the bugbear in which the court tried to frighten the nation but we were not children to be scared by nursery tales we were at peace and even in time of war an enemy who should attempt to invade us would probably be intercepted by our fleet and would assuredly if he reached our shores be repelled by our militia some people indeed talked as if a militia could achieve nothing great but that base doctrine was refuted by all ancient and all modern history what was the lacedaemonian phalanx in the best days of lacedaemon what was the roman legion in the best days of rome what were the armies which conquered at crecy at poitiers at agincourt at Halidon or at Flodden? What was that mighty array which Elizabeth reviewed at Tilbury? In the fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth centuries, Englishmen who did not live by the trade of war had made war with success and glory. Were the Englishmen of the seventeenth century so degenerate that they could not be trusted to play the men for their own homesteads and parish churches? For such reasons as these, the disbanding of the forces was strongly recommended. Parliament, it was said, might perhaps, from respect and tenderness for the person of his majesty, permit him to have guards enough to escort his coach and to pace the rounds before his palace. But this was the very utmost that it would be right to concede. The defense of the realm ought to be confided to the sailors and the militia. Even the tower ought to have no garrison except the train bands of the tower hamlets it must be evident to every intelligent and dispassionate man that these declaimers contradicted themselves if an army composed of regular troops really was far more efficient than any army composed of husbandsmen taken from the plough and the burghers taken from the counter how could the country be safe with no defenders but husbandsmen and burghers when a great prince who was our nearest neighbour who had a few months before been our enemy and who might in a few months be our enemy again kept up not less than a hundred and fifty thousand regular troops if on the other hand the spirit of the english people was such that they would with little or no training encounter and defeat the most formidable array of veterans from the continent was it not absurd to apprehend that such a people could be reduced to slavery by a few regiments of their own countrymen 
but our ancestors were generally so much blinded by prejudice that this inconsistency passed unnoticed they were secure where they ought to have been wary and timorous where they might well have been secure they were not shocked by hearing the same man maintain in the same breath that if twenty thousand professional soldiers were kept up the liberty and property of millions of englishmen would be at the mercy of the crown and yet that those millions of englishmen fighting for liberty and property would speedily annihilate an invading army composed of fifty or sixty thousand of the conquerors of steinkirk and london whoever denied the former proposition was called a tool of the court whoever denied the latter was accused of insulting and slandering the nation end of section one recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington